Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Friday night, you're still here. Next week, I like it so much, I come back next week. It's good to be in church. Let's have the Spirit of the Lord meet with us. I'm going to take a risk tonight. And the risk is it's Friday night. You've been here all week. In fact, y'all been here two weeks. So there's probably weariness of the flesh. And you're going to have to listen on purpose tonight. Okay? I am going somewhere. I'm headed somewhere in the text. But it's going to take me a little while to get there. And so if you will, if you'll just listen on purpose until I get to where I'm headed. And you'll know when I get there. And if we all get there together, it'd be wonderful. <laughs> Several weeks ago, I was invited to preach in a Bible conference in Cana, Virginia. It was a Bible conference where the pastor assigned the text to the guest preachers. There was about four of us there, I believe, that week. And I get into two or three of these every year where the pastor will have us preach through a book or a chapter or something along those lines. Back in June, we did one in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we preached through the book of Jude. And the way that it typically would work is on Monday night, you are assigned ahead of time the speaking schedule and the text. And so on Monday night, the first guy gets up and he preaches from Jude verse 1. Then immediately after the next preacher gets up, he's got verse two. You come back the next morning, morning services, and throughout the week, we eventually preach through the entire book by one or two verses at a time. The rule always is, is you can go back in the text, you cannot go forward in the text, you can't get on the next guy's verse. That would not be fair. So in the last week of December, we were preaching in one in Virginia, and the preacher had assigned text from Romans 1 through 5. We were preaching through those five chapters, not verse by verse, but just isolated texts. And one of the texts that I had been assigned was Romans 2 and verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, whenever you approach a standalone text, the first thing to bear in mind is that it is probably not meant to be a standalone text. Expository preaching is when you pay, preach a passage, a paragraph, a chapter. Textual preaching is when you preach a single text. Probably the master of textual preaching was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When you read his sermons in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, most of his sermons are from one single verse. Now obviously if you are preaching from just a single text, you are preaching the Bible, but there is the danger that you avoid the surrounding context. Every text is part of a broader context. And so even this verse, verse number 11, stands in the middle of a much broader context on the judgment of God. Really if you back up to chapter 1 and verse number 18, Paul has begun to lay out the condemnation of man because only when a man feels his condemnation will he plead for mercy. 
Paul knew that you must get a man lost before you can get him saved. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about. And in the middle of all of this condemnation and all of this judgment in these three chapters, we read, but there is no respect of persons with God. In Romans chapter 1, the heathen are judged. The immoral man that is described in the second half of that chapter that frankly is is characteristic of much of America and Western culture, the heathen man. In Romans chapter two, it is the hypocrite that is being judged, the man who judges others by a different standard than he judges himself and he boasts of his own goodness. In chapter three, it is the Hebrew that's being judged. It's the Jew who boasts of his, in his heritage and his religious rituals and he thinks that he has favor with God just because of his nationality. And Paul concludes that the verdict is that all are condemned before God. That's the argument that Paul's going to make in these chapters. I imagine that when some of the Jewish brethren would read Romans chapter 1, they would probably say a big amen at the end of it because Paul had really hit the nail on the head. He had really nailed those heathens' hides to the wall who had no knowledge of God. I mean, the way that they live, they're going to hell and they deserve it. And by the way, it's easy for you and I to take the same attitude. The drunk, the doper, the sodomite, the murderer, the, the rebel, they deserve judgment and, and they're going to get it one day. But if that's all that you get out of chapter one, then you're not ready for chapter two. Because in chapter two, the same judgment that is reserved for that immoral, heathen, pagan man is reserved for the religious man who still does not know God. I believe that our world has a very wrong concept of God. Most do not believe that God is a God of judgment. He would never send anybody to hell. The preacher who preaches that God is always just a God of love and he never preaches on the wrath of God, he paints a very distorted picture of God. But then there are some who say, well, you know, God will judge. There, there is a wrathful judge, but, 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 but it's, for, it's for them. It's not for us. I, I, I've not done anything bad enough to warrant the judgment of God. I, I, I've lived a good life. I, I'm a moral person. I, I give to charity. And in Paul's day, there was nobody that was more adamant of the morality than the Jew. And because his view of himself was too high, his view of God was too low. He was a moralist who would read Romans chapter one and he would check off the list of all the things that he did not do and his morality gave him a false sense of security and it deceived him into believing that he was not worthy of condemnation. And the Jew believed that God would blast the Gentiles. I mean, just blow the Ninevites up, but no Jew believed that he would ever experience this judgment because he was, well, frankly, because he was a Jew. His ancestral and his, his religious trappings made him a special case. And by the way, all over Rossville, Georgia tonight, there are people who believe the exact same thing. My grandmother was a Christian. I belong to a Baptist church. I've been at my job for 40 years. I've, ne I, 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 I've, I've never been in trouble with the law. I, I pay my taxes. You don't see me at the honky-tonk on Friday night and, and you don't hear about me getting drunk and you've never heard of me beating my wife and, and I don't steal anything from my neighbor. And see, all of us can find somebody else that's in just a little bit worse shape than I am to make that the standard of judgment for me. And I can easily go to Romans chapter one and I can feel good about myself because that does not apply to 
to me. And that's why Paul writes Romans chapter 2. It is for the moral man, the religious man, the church man who feels self-confident that I'm not as wicked as Romans chapter 1 and I want to excuse myself because I am such a good person. So when you come to Romans chapter 2, you're taking up the theme that the moral man, especially as epitomized by the Jew in that day, is as guilty and worthy of judgment as the immoral man. Paul is going to lay waste to every excuse you have ever made in hopes of avoiding judgment. Now, now what would cause a man to be deceived by his own self-righteousness and convince himself that he of all people is too good for judgment? Because the next person you hand a track to believes that. It's very rare to find somebody that says, yes, preacher, I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell and I deserve it. Nobody thinks that they deserve the wrath of God. And in this chapter, Paul's going to lay out some false views that man has about God that leads him to that ill-fated self-deception. If you will look quickly at verse number one, and I, I'm going to try to get to my point just as quick as I can. But man has a flawed view of God's justice. Look at verse number one. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Self-righteousness always leads to self-deception. We can point to the sins of the immoral and boast that I don't do those things. But if you look deep down in your heart, you'll discover you're guilty of the same sins. I have never bowed down to an idol. I have had idolatry in my heart. I've been faithful to my wife and I've never been with another woman. I have had lust in my heart. I've never murdered a man, but I have harbored hatred and, 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 and spite against a man. We all commit the same sins, some respectably, some not so, some inwardly, some outwardly. But your self-righteousness is not going to be an acceptable defense in God's court. Notice, if you would, in verse number two, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. The verdict of God, when men stand before him, is going to be according to truth. The truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, his verdict will reflect his knowledge of you. And sometimes a human judge makes a faulty judgment because he doesn't have all the evidence or some of the evidence is not admissible that will not be the case with God. Notice if you would in verse number three. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Do you really think that? Do you really believe that God is going to judge others and he's not going to judge you? So Paul wants you to know it is a fatal mistake to presume upon the justice of God. In verse four and five, man has a flawed view of God's goodness. Verse four. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing 
that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's a theological term for the thinking of verse number four. It is retribution theology. And retribution theology teaches that there is a direct correlation between the life that you live, God's approval of you, and what you will experience in the next life. If in this life you enjoy good things, then that somehow must mean that God approves of you and you will be okay in the life to come. The Jews really believed in retribution theology. They mistook the blessings of God for the approval of God and that gave them false assurance that they would not be judged by God. But you and I know the fact that somebody enjoys a good life here says absolutely nothing about his eternal destiny. Paul mentions God's goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering. There is not a person on this planet who has not experienced those things in his life because God universally displays his goodness to all men, even men who are his enemies. God is generous. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. The atheist on your street, the rain falls on his yard just like it does yours. That's just how God is. But what is the intent of all of this goodness of God is that it might lead men to repentance. It is not for you to think that you deserve more or that you are immune from some kind of judgment. No, it is for you to look at the goodness of God and the grace of God, that incredible display of grace in your life and the kindness that he bestows in your life and for you to know that if you come to him in repentance, he's gonna do what he's always done. He's gonna display even more grace upon your life and save you. That's the intent of it. Man has a flawed view of God's goodness. But then in verse 6 through 16, he has a flawed view of God's judgment. And in these verses, Paul lays out the standards by which God will judge the world. Now, I don't have time to go through them, but in verse 6 through 10, he's going to judge man by his deeds. In verse 12 through 15, he's going to judge according to his law. In verse number 16, he's going to judge according to our hearts. In the very middle of that, we find our text. For there is no respect of persons with God. In every principle that Paul is giving, there is an argument that he's answering. That there, there's, there's an imaginary conversation where Paul anticipates an argument and then he answers it. And, and here, here's the only one that we're concerned with. Is it fair? Is it fair for God to judge the moral man on the same standard as he judges the immoral? If you live a good life, shouldn't your goodness give you a leg up? Shouldn't it give you some kind of advantage? Shouldn't your morality, your goodness, your religion, shouldn't it count for something at the judgment? And to that, Paul says, there is no respect of persons with God. God is fair. God is just. God is impartial. No respect doesn't mean that he doesn't respect man. It, doesn't, it means that he doesn't regard any man more than another. And as I look at this text, there are, there, there's three truths that I, I want to draw from it. And the third one is really where I'm going to. I want you to notice, first of all, if you write it down, that God demonstrates impartiality in his character. 
Verse number 11 is a statement about the character of God. And we know God by his attributes. God is love and God is omniscient and, and, and God is powerful. It is part of the character of our God that he is just. He is completely unbiased. He, he is objective. He is, he, he is unprejudiced. And as much as we don't want to admit it, we're not. We are exactly the opposite. Uh, this is not a political statement. I, I believe that there is a two-tiered system of justice in America. I, I believe that. And somebody said that the system is flawed. Not really. We have a great system. But when you put flawed men in charge of the system, that's where it breaks down. The problem is not the system. The problem is the crooked men that are placed in charge of the justice system. But God is just. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't place favorites. He is not prejudiced. And, and, and just to see, my, see me, no, 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 I, I want you to turn to a couple of passages and let me show you what does not sway God. Hold your finger right here. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You've got to think with me for just a little bit tonight. We'll not go too deep, but just please stay with me. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and look at verse number seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God is not influenced by outward appearances. Never has been, never will be. Outward appearances don't sway God. Well, one of the things that I absolutely despise doing is shopping. I absolutely hate it, especially in a shopping mall. Malls give me headaches. Mall, I am allergic to malls. I, I never walk into a mall unless it is absolutely life or death. I hate it, hate it. So, so a few weeks ago, I, I was in Pensacola with my wife and, and we were doing some things and she wanted to stop at the um, uh, I, I, I never came to get the, 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 the bath, the, the, uh, the, body, the body and bath works place where you get the candles and the soap and the, the, the all right. So she wanted to stop that. Well, that's in the mall. So, so me being a, you know, a, a, a gentle husband and wife, so I agreed. We went into this, this Cordova mall and, and so we go in there and we go in there. Well, I'm not going in there. I, and so I, I find the bench right outside the mall and, I, and I, I do the only thing that you can do in the mall and that's people watch. That's people watch. And I, I'm good at that. I, I, I'm, I, I'm really good. And so I, I, I'm sitting there mad because I'm in there and, and, and I'm sitting on the bench and I'm, I'm just watching people. Bye. You know people really should look in the mirror before they go out in public. They really should. And I'm thinking, I mean, did you, did you, did you not know that you were leaving the house today? You know, and somebody, I mean, did, did you intend to come in your pajamas? That doesn't make sense to me. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just people watching. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, if you would buy a pair of breeches that fit, you wouldn't have to walk around, hold them up all the time. You, you know, and they would stay up by themselves. And I like to guess. And I, I'm good at guessing. Uh, and you've done this too. Huh? He's got money. He don't have any money. Right? She's married. She will never get married. I can just tell. I can just tell. I don't know these people, but I'm just judging on appearances. Appearances don't influence God. 
Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. He's not influenced by outward appearance. And Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Poor people and people with no social standing are often taken advantage by a crooked court system, but that never happens with God. He's not influenced by bribes. Now somebody said, well, who would ever try to bribe God? I mean, I mean, who would ever suppose that you could give God something to get him to give you preferential treatment? Well, they do it all the time. Lord, I hope you see what I'm doing for you lately. Do you see my penance? Lord, I want you to know I've been here every night of revival meeting. I am expecting it to come back to me somehow. God, God, you see me putting this offering in? Are you counting it? I, I, I'm praying threefold. And listen, I know that God blesses good works, but if you're trying to get off the hook for rejecting Christ and his righteousness, you are not gonna be able to manipulate God. He's not influenced by bribes. I'll skip some of these. Go to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. I'll show you something else that doesn't, it doesn't sway God. In Galatians, Galatians chapter two, and I, I tell you, young men, something. I always get Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I, I, always, I always get the, I don't know how you, but, but here's how you know. Here's how you, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Girls eat popcorn. If you remember that, you'll always know it. Galatians, chap, Galatians chapter two. Look, look at verse number five. Just, just, just help you young men. Galatians two verse five. To whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with, watch this, but of those who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, now Paul's hearkening back to Acts 15, Jerusalem council over circumcision. He and Barnabas stood up, stood up to those apostles. He was a nobody, he stood before those apostles, but, but, but God's not moved by your influence or by your reputation, and he's not, he's not denigrating the office of the apostle, but he's saying that God doesn't even play favorites with the apostles. We, we would say it like this, there are no Christian celebrities as far as God's concerned. He, he's, he's, not, he's not influenced by, possession, by, by position. You're in Galatians 2, look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3 verse 27 for as many as you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He is impartial to social status. If you have believed on Christ, you are Abraham's seed, even if you don't have a drop of Jewish blood in you. And, and you are of the spiritual seed of Abraham because you're of the faith of Abraham. And it doesn't mean that I'm no longer a Jew or, or a Gentile or that the Jew is no longer a Jew. It simply means it doesn't matter. God does not judge according to ethnicity or, or racial divides. He doesn't judge based on financial status because if you're a slave or free man, it doesn't matter to him. When it comes, to, when it comes to, to Christ, we are all equal before him. So what I'm trying to say is that God is impartial in his character. He's fair, he's just. Come back to my text. Not only, not only is God impartial in his character, here's the second thought. God demands impartiality of his creatures. Not only is God impartial, he demands that you and I be impartial as well. 
All authority is delegated authority. So when you sit in a seat of authority, you sit there as God's representative. And you must bear in mind, in the home, the church, the job, wherever it might be, that your authority comes from God. Romans 13 tells us that. Rulers are ministers of God to do good and to punish evil. God expects government. He expects individuals to do justly. It is a part of who he is, so it ought to be a part of what we are. Leviticus 19, 15, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbors. Don't judge people on externals like wealth or poverty. Don't let somebody's financial standing influence you. Sometimes the poor get treated worse and the rich get treated better. That is a miscarriage of God's justice. I gotta give you a couple of verses, a couple of verses. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter one. If you're still with me, say amen. Just, just Deut- Deuteronomy chapter one. Going somewhere, going somewhere. Deuteronomy chapter one. And look at verse number 16. Deuteronomy 1, 16. I charged your judges at that time saying, hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, Ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. Moses places judges to judge the smaller matters that come up in the nation. And he tells them, you're standing in God's place. And since he's not partial in judgment, then you do justly as well. When you are given a sphere of authority, whether it's the job or law enforcement, whatever it might be, we are expected to treat people the same. Psalm 82 and verse two, how long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. That's the kind of justice system that we desire. One that is fair. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a couple of more verses. 1 Timothy chapter number 5, and look if you would in verse number 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number, or verse number 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Now, now in the verses verses before, he he talks about an elder in verse number 20 or verse number 19. Here is an elder that is accused of a sin. In verse number 20, here is one that is caught in sin. When we move from the secular realm and we move into the church realm of church discipline, the same principle of impartiality is supposed to guide us. Here's the principle. In verse number 19, here is an elder who is accused. He is accused. But do not let your prejudice against him make you too quick to believe the accusation without having two or three witnesses. But in verse number 20, Here is one who is caught. He is guilt. But do not let um, uh, just his reputation or because he thinks he's a big preacher or he's well-liked, don't let that cloud you. No. 
in both cases in verse number 21, don't prefer one before another. Do nothing by partiality. Well, one more passage, James chapter two, you're almost there. James chapter two, and boy, this one is really one that every church needs to apply. James chapter two, verse number one. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, happy clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love them? The, the sinner that walks into your church that is, that is in, in ragged clothes and he's disheveled, he ought to be treated with the same respect and the same kindness and the same welcome as a man that walks in with a tailor-made suit driving a Lexus in the parking lot. God help us if one is ever desired more than the other. God help us if we ever become spiritual snobs in the church and look down on a brother or a sister just because of their race or their education or their looks or their social status or any other petty external. God help us if we ever do that. Because of our beliefs, um, we, we are misunderstood by the lost world and, and we are given labels that are simply not true. If you believe homosexuality is a sin, you are a homophobe according to this world. If, if you believe that the man is the head of the home and in a position of leadership, then you're sexist or here's the new word, you're a misogynist, that's what you are. Huh? And, and the truth about it, about, about it is we're not any of those things. We're not racist, we're not sexist, we're not phobes, we're not bigots. No, we treat people the same. We respect people the same. We love, we love our neighbor regardless of the color of the skin. I have a black man that lives on one side of me. I have a white man that lives on the other side of me. When I grill a steak, I grill one for the black man and I grill one for the white man. I, I help them both. I, I get along with both of them equally and that is how it ought to be. So come back to my text. I, I, I'm going there. So, so here's what we learn. God demonstrates impartiality in his character. God is fair. And then God demands impartiality of his creatures. Here's the third thought. I'm going home. God displays impartiality to the condemned. Now come back to the text. And again, notice. It is in the context of condemnation. It is telling you that in the future judgment, God is going to judge all men with impartiality. Every man is going to be judged by the same standard. Nothing outside of him and his holy law will come into consideration. Every secret is going to be made known. All of the evidence against you will be weighed. And there will be no favors. There will be no bribes. There will be no two-tiered systems of justice. There will be no special treatment. There is no respect of persons with God in condemnation. And what condemnation is supposed to do, I know it is not shouting crowd, but what condemnation is supposed to do, it is supposed to work 
conviction. By the time you get to Romans 3 and verse 21 in this book, the sinner ought to be thoroughly convicted of his sin. Whether you are the heathen of chapter 1 or the hypocrite of chapter 2 or the heathen or the, or the Hebrew of chapter 3, you know by now that you are a sinner and you have nothing that you can bring to God and that if you are going to stand righteous before God, it will not be in your own righteousness because you don't have any. And the sinner reads three chapters of condemnation and realizes that he stands naked before a righteous God and that God will not be bribed and he will not be swayed and he will not be partial. No respect of persons with God. You get to Romans chapter three, there is none righteous, no, not one. List of all those things. You get to chapter 23, verse number 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is condemnation, it is condemnation, it is condemnation. And then you come to Romans three and verse 22. And it turns the page. And now he is beginning to give a solution. There is a remedy. There is a way out of all of this condemnation. And he says in verse number 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Boy, the page is getting ready to turn. Even the righteousness of God, would you like to have that? Even the righteousness of God, how do you get it? Which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Here's a great verse for the Calvinist brethren, unto all and upon all them that believe. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. But there is a righteousness that is available through the faith of Jesus Christ unto all, upon all that believe. And would you notice the last statement of verse number 22? For there is no difference. We are now on the other side of this thing. Condemnation is over. And Paul is now going to lay out in chapter 3 and chapter 4 the case for justification by faith. And by the way, if you realize that you are condemned, then wouldn't it be interesting to find out that you can be justified? If that God that has condemned you in your sin would somehow, would somehow turn around and pronounce you righteous, boy, that's what I would want. And Paul says that the same God who is impartial in condemnation is impartial in justification. It will not matter how high up you are when you stand before God. It will not matter how low you are when you stand before God. Being high up will not exclude you from the wrath of God and being low down will not exclude you from the grace of God. He will condemn all sinners regardless of their status in life but he will also save any sinner regardless of his lack of status in life. There is no difference. I heard about justice but then I heard about grace. I heard that I was condemned in my sin, but then I heard that Jesus Christ died for my sin. I heard that I was not righteous, but then I heard that he was righteous. And through the miracle of grace, that that righteous judge would actually impute the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ to me that I could literally stand before a righteous and a holy God 
in the righteousness of his son. That when God looks at all of the evidence, that the evidence also includes the death of his son and the fact that I trusted him. He would see me standing in Christ, not my own. He would see me standing in Christ's righteousness and he would declare me righteous. Preacher, you don't understand. I'm, I'm poor. I have nothing to offer. There is no difference. But preacher, if you knew my past, I've not lived a moral life. There is no difference. But preacher, I come from the wrong side of the tracks. There is no difference. You see, the impartiality of God, it can work against you or it can work for you. And tonight, if you're in this room and you have never been saved, if you reject Jesus Christ, you will stand one day at the judgment of God and you will face a righteous judge who is completely without favoritism and without prejudice. And his verdict will be based on his perfect knowledge of your life and his impeccable law and his righteous demands. He is not going to consider your nationality. He's not going to look at your wealth. He is not concerned with what you have done in your life. He's not going to see how many followers you have on Facebook. He's not going to check to see how high you made it in society. He's not going to care what you accomplished in your career. What other people think about you will not influence you how he judges you. But there is another side to the coin. I'm glad tonight that it's not just saving rich people, that it's not just saving influential people because he is impartial in judgment. He is also impartial in salvation and he saves the moral and the immoral, the Jew and the Gentile, the rich and the poor. And some of you tonight were not of the saving kind. To be honest, he should have passed you up. You should not have been in the line because some of you were at the bottom of the barrel. Some of you didn't deserve any of this. And you came. You weren't the cream of, cream of anybody's cup. And you weren't at the head of anybody's list. You weren't at the top of the class. You weren't who's who of anything. But you came to him and you said, I don't have anything, but I believe your son. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. You came to him. You said, I have nothing. I have nothing but Jesus Christ. And you found out that nothing matters to him except Jesus Christ. You can read Romans 2 and verse 11 and you can tremble. If you're lost, you should. Or you can read Romans 2 and 11 and you can shout. It depends on which side of the cross that you stand. Thank God that we serve an impartial God. If there had been any other criteria, I would not have made it in. But I simply came. I said, I don't have anything to offer. Can't promise you anything. But I trust him. And I found out that there was no respect of persons with God. 